A few years ago, while browsing a machine learning group on Facebook, I stumbled across a guide on how to get started in deep learning. That was the specific area that I was interested in. The link to the guide read something like yegabanncom slash guide. This sparked my curiosity and I looked into it more and found that there was a research group in Armenia called Yerevan N that was doing machine learning research. From here, I found out about the exciting activity in the Armenian tech sector as I did more and more research after that. And eventually this sparked my decision to move to Armenia. One of the co-authors of that guide was Hergant Khachatergan, who is our guest today on EVN Disrupt. Hergant is a PhD in graph theory from Yerevan State University. He is also the founder and director of Yerevan N, a machine learning research lab in Armenia. We spoke about building a research lab in Armenia from nothing, what is needed to boost scientific research activity in the country, and how Hergant sees the future of Yerevan N and many other topics. Hergant, welcome to the podcast. Hergant, let's start a little bit with your background. Um, how did you, uh, when you were choosing what to study in university, how did you come about computer science and mathematics? Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So at school, I was almost sure that I will become a historian. Mm, I didn't know yeah, that. <laughs> I was interested in ancient history of Armenia and things like that. Uh, but at some point, I realized that I started to do web programming at the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. By that time, we were studying for 10 years, right? I was the last generation that had 10 years of studies at school. Yeah, mm. and uh, I think it was eighth grade when I realized that I'm more interested in, I don't know, creating websites. I, I studied a couple of programming languages by then, and it felt like this direction is more active, is changing more actively and is growing more actively, and somehow uh, decided that going towards programming is is more interesting for me mm-hmm. and i didn't know what's happening in the universities it's it's a very common problem in armenia as you can already imagine that there are like stereotypes that if you want to be a programmer you should probably go to so-called Kirarakan, which is applied mathematics uh, department of yerevan state university and i didn't know that it involves a lot of mathematics or something i studied mathematics well at school so it was not a problem to mm-hmm. get accepted to the university but then i think even in the first year of university studies i realized that mathematics like pure mathematics is even more interesting than mm-hmm. programming so i i was doing programming i was doing some freelance work but in parallel i chose some projects to work on uh, which turned out to be projects in graph theory which is a branch of computer science i was lucky to have a very good supervisor mm-hmm. He taught me discrete mathematics in the first year of studies, and then he agreed to supervise my research projects. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it, it became a very long project. So we started from the second year of the university. Uh, and then after undergrad, we I went to master's with the same supervisor and then did a three-year PhD mm-hmm. with the same supervisor. So by the end of the PhD, it was like almost six, seven years that I was working on this graph theoretic stuff. Mm-hmm. I realized that working on scientific problems, working on problems that are not solved, and no one really knows if they are solvable, mm-hmm. this is pretty interesting. So yeah, yeah, that that was the I think biggest motivation to to get into that. Like if you're solving a problem that is written in a textbook mm-hmm. or 
is given at some contests, you know that this problem is solvable, mm-hmm. right? So someone has solved it before, and yeah, you you just need to discover the solution or maybe find another one. But if there is a problem that you don't know if it's solvable or not, and then you have this, the talent of your supervisor is very important, right? Because uh, it's very easy to give a problem that is not solvable and is, there is right. no chance that you can get any progress there. But the talent of a good supervisor is that it, he gives a problem that is not solved yet, but he feels that it should be solvable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this problems on the edge of being realistic to be right. solved. Yeah, finding these pro- problems is very important. Yeah, and, and I was lucky to have a supervisor like that. Mm-hmm. So in your undergraduate years at Yerevan State, were you studying both computer science and mathematics, or was it mostly just math? Uh, this is a good question. So the tradition of, uh, I think it comes from the Soviet era of organizing computer science studies mm-hmm. in general, it involves a lot of mathematics. Mm-hmm. So technically it is called informatics and applied mathematics. Right. And I think compared to computer science courses in uh, in Western universities, it involves a lot more maths, mm-hmm. including like calculus, differential equations, right. this type of maths, right? Uh, there is also mathematics direction in Yerevan State University. Uh, which lacks mostly the discrete part of the mathematics, which is like graph theory, combinatorics, and things like Mm -hmm. that, right? This applied mathematics department, which is again not unique to Armenia, I think it's everywhere in the post-Soviet space, Uh, you have this nice mix of theoretical computer science, a little bit of programming, and uh, some calculus and other types of maths. Mm -hmm. So that's what is accepted as computer science in Armenia, which some people don't like, especially those who come to our department to quickly become a programmer. Right. They usually complain that why do we study all this math? And right. yeah, but uh, I think that's that's a very good combination. Especially yeah. for academic work. Uh, not only. Yeah. yeah. So for academic work, definitely. So in academia, you uh, realize very late that all mathematics are basically the same and you the more you know from different branches, the more chances you have to mm-hmm. uh, actually produce something interesting. Uh, but but not, not only. So mm-hmm. if you want to become a programmer that can solve complicated problems, then you need this apparatus mm-hmm. from very different branches uh, of mathematics. And the more you know, the more chances you have to solve interesting problems. That's right, yeah. Fundamentally, all science is mathematics. So... Uh, the more you know, the better. Hrant, <laughs> these days, most people in Armenia, at least, uh, know you for your work in machine learning and the work that you do at Yegevan N. How did you st- How did you first come across machine learning and how did that interest you? I think it was in 2015 when we were trying to organize courses, like extra courses in our department for some students. It, it was not an obligatory course. It's, it was something extra after classes. Mm-hmm. Like so, not a formal course they registered for, just exactly, a, yeah. Extracurricular. Uh, so, uh, we were choosing video courses from different websites. I think we started from Udacity. There was a course on GPU programming. Okay, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, yeah and it's a parallel programming course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know, like five, six, seven students. We were getting together every week and watching one video. Mm-hmm. So. That was how we got into this type of learning. Mm-hmm. And then in 2015, we started to watch a course on neural networks. Uh, I remember that I found that course accidentally. So uh, I was reading about machine learning in Reddit. 
there was a long thread, you know, this uh, type of Reddit posts, which are called AMA, Ask right. Me Anything, mm-hmm. right? So there was an AMA with Joshua Bengio, mm. uh, who is a professor of machine learning from Canada. And someone asked him if he wants to create an online course by himself. Mm-hmm. And he responded that, no, he doesn't have time. He works on the book. It later become this deep learning book. Yeah. yeah. But he said that one of his students in another University of Canada has recorded a video course, and, and that's a very good one. Mm-hmm. So that's how we found it. It yeah. was not discoverable at that point. Like, you couldn't Google and find this course. because it's yeah. Was uh, it the Geoffrey Hinton course? No, course that was the Hugo La Rochelle's course. Oh, okay. uh, Hugo La Rochelle is now, I think he leads Google Brain Montreal now. But yeah. at, at, at that point, he was uh, in one Canadian university that I didn't know. I think it's... Sherbrooke or something mm. like that, yeah. Uh, but it was a very good course, mm-hmm. very well recorded, like professional recording, mm-hmm. yeah, with slides and so on, uh, with other materials on his website. And I think the website was in French, so okay. it, 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 it was not discoverable. Like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this but was it, in 2015. It, uh, it, it was recorded in 2013, I think, okay. even, yeah. Uh, and we started to watch that course. You know, when these courses are not obligatory, on the first day you have, like, 20, 30 students, and then the number decreases. Uh, decreases <laughs> and yeah, it, we, I think we finished the course with like seven people or something. Uh, and we didn't, <laughs> we didn't even finish the entire thing. So mm-hmm. we kind of selected something. Mm-hmm. I realized that at that point that there is an interest in students to work on that. And we realized that we do not have supervisors to do like serious scientific work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wanted to do something. And uh, I think the next step was to participate in some Kaggle competition. So Kaggle is a website where uh, different companies bring their problems mm-hmm. or even non-profits. Uh, so they provide you the data and uh, you you have to solve uh, a prediction problem on, on this data. And we took a problem. It was about uh, diabetic retinopathy detection from eye images from retina images. I think we were either 600 place. I think we there were like 2000 participants and we were around 600 place or something on that competition. So we performed pretty bad, but that was a very good sign that uh, the competition in this field is global. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to be like the best machine learning expert in Armenia. Like right. it doesn't mean anything, right? right. You, you have to see where you are in the in the global list right. somehow, right? Yeah. And uh, this helped us to kind of set the correct expectations and correct incentives that we have to be competitive in the in the global space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we realized that we need a room where we can all sit and work on these problems, right? Even if we don't have a supervisor. So it took a while before we actually did this. I think it took almost a year from that point. Mm-hmm. And in summer 2016, I think during the spring, during the uh, after the April war, there were lots of discussions on how to develop this field in Armenia, what are mm. the options, and we were discussing all kinds of strategies, like how to work with industry. And uh, at, at that point, there were a few people who were kind of pushing me to do something, mm-hmm. and they were doing it like independently. One of them was Vazgen Hakobjanyan, mm-hmm. who later founded SmartGate. The other guy was uh, Gor Vartanyan from Fimetech, so they had a small team which wanted to do some machine learning for various purposes. And then there was Ruben Meshchan, 
mm-hmm. who was pushing me towards that direction. And at some point, yeah, I organized a meeting with all of them and said, okay, let's let's start doing something. So I think uh, the best way to start is to start an academic style lab mm-hmm. uh, where we can grow talent and grow the next generation of professors because that was an obvious gap. Right. So there are students who want to work on this, but there are no professors who can supervise. At the time when you guys were organizing these extracurricular mm-hmm. courses in machine learning, was there any machine learning activity at Yerevan State University? I don't think so. No. No courses were being taught? Or... No, no, no. Okay. I think the courses started like two or three years later. Right. Yeah. So now today there are courses yes. in machine learning at YSU. Yes. We'll, we'll get talk to that. about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, we decided to do something. So we... We rented an apartment next to the university Mm -hmm. so that we can spend time there. We had one computer with one GPU to run our code. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, like we had a goal to become an academic lab without even knowing what it is. Like right when now I'm thinking about it, it was crazy. That's the no idea. (laughs) That's the beauty of being naive because if you if you knew what you were going to get into, you might have not gotten into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a fascinating story because a lot of people in Armenia do a lot of very ambitious tech projects, usually startups, but creating a research lab, a nonprofit research lab, in many ways, I think is even more ambitious. You already spoke a little bit about people's reaction to setting something like this up. They were very encouraging, but were there a lot of people in your in your circle that were doubtful that this would work? Yes, there were many doubts, including we had lots of doubts. Right. Like it's not that... Yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, there was a question like, what will happen if, if a large company just acquires all of us? Like, right, yeah. It just comes and like hires all of us, so gives an offer that it's very hard yeah, re- yeah. to refuse. Uh, and, and many other risks, like how are we going to fund it? Right. Uh, like at that point, most of us were students and we didn't really need much funds. But right. it was obvious that the market prices of the students will grow very fast and at some point, we will need to have a decent salaries. Right. Mm, and it was not obvious. So we started with donations. I also started to work at Intelinair, which is a tech company focused on agriculture, again, founded by Armenians. And at that point, I was the first employee in Armenia of that company. And mm. that way, I didn't need a salary for myself. So right. uh, that made things a lot easier. Yeah. And then with donations, we started to operate. But it was obvious that it cannot sustain, mm-hmm. right? And to answer your question, there were lots of doubts. Right. Uh, one more detail. So you say that it's even more ambitious. I want to be clear here that it, it sounds more ambitious, but it's less risky because like, if you're going the startup way, people usually don't get that. But I worked in a startup, so I know. So when you get an funds from an investment, you are under severe pressure to right. grow. That's right? right. Like yeah. in our case, there is almost no pressure to to grow, especially at startup rates. Hmm, that's like, true. Like, like yeah. no one kills us to not grow. Like, you don't need to do 10x in 18 months. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do you remember at what point it felt like you were transitioning from just being this group in this apartment on Chagans to being a proper research lab? What was that moment? It's hard to say. So at some point we started to work with an Armenian professor from University of Southern California, Aram Galestian. And he helped us to connect to one of his PhD students who spent a lot of time with us and helped us grow. I think without that, uh, we wouldn't be able to achieve anything, right? Mm. So we started to work on one paper and then we were working on other directions which didn't 
end up in a paper. So uh, it was a little bit chaotic, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was in 2019, so like three years later, when Aram Galistian told me that, you know, you are doing something. It's not that you don't produce anything, but this doesn't sound serious. So if you want to be a proper lab, you have to like at least have two, three serious paper submissions every year. Mm -hmm. It was interesting that he said submissions, right. not publications, right. because like you submit a paper, it might be rejected. Mm -hmm. If you have the courage to submit something, which like all co-authors agree that it's should be submitted, mm -hmm. especially if one of them is a professor from US, then it's a, it's some bar of quality, right? Mm -hmm. And at that point, I realized that, yeah, uh, with this uh, way of working, we cannot do that. And I made a decision to leave Intel in Air, the other company that I was working on, to focus fully on this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think one more year, so late 2020 and early uh, 2021 when we had several conference deadlines and we submitted three papers at once in, in two weeks. At that point, I felt that we are getting close to something that Aram Galistan was Talking telling about. about right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Although, so about three, yeah. four years after yes. you started. Yes, but I wouldn't say that uh, we are comfortable with this yet. So it's now it's more than five years. Uh, and we still have serious problems. For example, to be a proper lab, like another measurement, another bar that we need to pass is when we will be able to hire someone mm -hmm. who has research experience outside our lab. So everyone at Yerevanen started in uh, machine learning research at Yerevanen. Right. Right. But it, it it's not the way science works in general. Right. You need to able to hire people who did PhDs in other places and then they choose to continue their career for a few years or forever mm -hmm. in your team mm -hmm. right so so this is the way the regular labs work and uh, we are not there yet so we don't yet have any person who did a PhD outside our our lab or our universities right so in that sense we are not a proper lab yet mm -hmm. so so um, you guys got your start with working with some researchers at USC um, that Aryam Galustian, who's a professor there, put you in touch with. And you've continued these relationships with these universities. How do you guys, this, this is mainly the model that you're still working with now. What do you think is needed to get you to that next step that you're talking about, where you know a PhD from some other group or some other university comes and joins you guys as a principal investigator, as a researcher? First, we need to understand how scientists choose their uh, next destination, mm -hmm. right? So if you are doing a PhD in a decent university, you, you have a good supervisor, then you are looking for a postdoc position, which is a temporary, like two or three year academic position in another lab where you have like at least uh, more experienced researchers mm -hmm. and someone from whom you can learn. Right, more senior researchers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes during your PhD, you realize that you are interested in this direction more than the other direction and you're looking for more experienced researcher in that direction to go and work with them, right? And to be a lab where some PhD graduate would like to join, you have to be expert in some narrow direction uh, that is interesting to the students, mm -hmm. right? So that's the 
normal way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we satisfy this condition yet. So uh, we have to grow, we have to become so strong and uh, we have to publish so much in, in several directions so that people recognize us and people decide that they want to work with us mm-hmm. at that level, okay? Uh, people who already did their PhDs. So this is the normal way of doing it. Mm-hmm. The other trick uh, that you can do is to uh, somehow convince and hire more experienced person and then he or she will um, bring students or postdocs with them. Uh, with them, right? That's the other direction. And the third direction that I hope we will, be, we will manage to implement is that when someone completes their postdoc and feel confident that they can start their own team, they can work with students, and even at some point they can like apply for grants and things like that, right? Like they come and join us and form a team uh, with us. A research group within Yerevan. Uh, yeah, so yeah. so how it will be defined legally, it's it's an open question. So if someone wants to do that under Yerevan name, then it's okay if, if they want another name or another structure that's also fine uh, with us, right? Uh, the most important thing is to share a space, like to be in the same location right? and then work with students. So at this point, there are not many Armenian researchers in machine learning who are at this stage who are ready to form their own groups. Right. So this this first generation, that this first wave of students who went into PhDs in machine learning, they are just finishing their PhDs. Right. Okay, so probably in, in a couple of years, this will become more realistic so that they come and uh, they form their teams. In Armenia. And, yeah, in Armenia. And I think this is an important direction that we should uh, focus on, not only in machine learning, but in all branches of science. Right. Some of these students who are now studying abroad, doing their PhDs and their postdocs, are you targeting that? So, you know, they'll be graduating in the coming years. You're targeting to bring them to Armenia to be a principal investigator or a research scientist at Yerevanen? Yes. Yeah, so here is what I'm trying to do. So uh, first of all, I'm trying to convince every Armenian institution to kind of headhunt them. Right. Right. So before the Googles of the world. Do. Uh, well, you know, if if they choose to go to industry or to go to Google, it it will be tough to compete. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, but I, I think uh, all of them should have the feeling that uh, more than one Armenian institution is interested in hiring them. This is I think it's very important. And uh, Yerevanen is one of those institutions. So we are trying to talk to all these people regularly to see what they are doing and suggesting some options like telling what what kind of funding strategies we are trying and uh, which ones are succeeding which ones are not and mm-hmm. what are the ways to organize your scientific life in in Armenia I'm trying to be in touch with all of them and then to present these opportunities so that right. so that they know and at some point maybe some of them will choose this direction yeah and I think it's important to note that some of those students who are studying abroad now got their start at Yagavanen yes there are a few yeah. that that did but there are many others that didn't right so yeah. that's also important there are uh, many students like and not so students like for example there is Mikhail Sanvelian who mm-hmm. I think he did his masters at Oxford and got connected to some professors there and came back to Armenia and continued to work with them he published good papers and now he's at uh, Facebook AI in London mm-hmm. and I think he also does PhD at UCL in right. parallel so it's a, like joint lab mm-hmm. and he's also like uh, one of our targets so he had no connection to Yerevan at all right but 
Yeah. This model of, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Mikhail works at both at Facebook and mm-hmm. that is doing his PhD in parallel at UCL is one that is very common these days because industry is able to pay so much money to this to these graduate students that really I think one of the ways that the universities are hedging against this and being able to not be left behind is coming in and saying that you know while you're working in industry you can in parallel do your PhD and research work with us. Is this a model that you think can work in Armenia for instance um, with either someone from industry such as a CRISP or a superannuate teaming up with a Yerevan State University or AUA to do their graduate work there while they're working in industry or with a private lab like yourself. Is this a model that could work in Armenia? Well, in theory, yes. So there's nothing against this format. Uh, I, I think what happens at Facebook and UCL is that these people do not work on directly on Facebook products. So this is important, right? So Facebook is rich enough to allow uh, some of their employees to work on pure academic, uh, work. Pure academic yeah. stuff. And I don't think like even PixArt at this point is at that stage. So yeah. uh, PixArt works a lot with academics from US and Russia. But my impression is that all of them are somehow connected to uh, to their products. Right? The core work at PixArt. Yeah. But I think the bigger problem is who is going to supervise this mm-hmm. PhD projects, right? right? So the way it works in other plane with Facebook and Google and others is that there are professors who share their time in the university and Facebook. Right. Okay, so I think Mikhail's supervisor is doing that. I'm not very sure, but uh, I think that's how it, it is set up there. So they teach a little bit. They have a research position in the university. They also have a research position on Facebook. Right. Uh, and when a student joins the group, they kind of join the this entire cooperation, mm-hmm. right? So they, they get a degree from university, but they spend their time maybe mostly in Facebook offices and they work with the same person in both places. So so the key part here is who is the supervisor? Mm-hmm. So when thinking about Armenia, I think we don't have a luxury to choose the format. So whenever we find a supervisor who agrees to supervise one student, then we should ask this supervisor, this professor, which format he or she prefers, right? Right. So if if they want to work with CRISP or others, then yes. If they don't want, mm-hmm. we shouldn't create a problem for them, okay? Because that's where we have the bottleneck. Right. So the scale of the companies is, you're right, is, are very different um, in the Californias of the world than than in Armenia so far. Uh, yeah. Uh, one comment there. I think there are a few uh, companies at a smaller scale that are ready to work in this format. So they are kind of trying to copy what Google and others are doing, but it's still rare. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't exclude this possibility. Right. I, I, I don't want to say that if if we are not, if we do not have a company at Google scale, we cannot do this. Right. No, sure we can, yeah. And actually, Pixar has, I believe, an AI lab at AUA and Chris started one at YSU. We'll talk about that in a second. But before we get there, at the university levels in Armenia, what is the state of machine learning education and research today, and how has it evolved since you guys started those, you know, after-class uh, clubs? Yeah, so we were doing other, uh, like, even after this 2015 course, uh, we had a few more iterations of uh, extra courses at the university. Uh, I think then the first serious effort to teach machine learning was from Armenian Code Academy. Hmm. Arsen Mamikonyan, who was studying master's at MIT, he was at Armenia at that point. 
he's still in Armenia. At, at that point, he just moved to Armenia, and Armenian Code Academy convinced him to set up, uh, I think, five, six months course on machine learning. So they uh, managed to find many uh, students with strong mathematics background, mm -hmm. and they started a, a pretty good course. And I think all graduates of that course are either leading some machine learning teams now in companies or are key people in, in ML teams. So that was a pretty successful one. And I think at that point, AUA started to provide a couple of courses in machine learning. And then Russian Armenian University and Yerevan State University started master programs. Mm -hmm. This was right around 2016? Or maybe 2017. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. This is when machine learning really started to you know, be in every media headline and uh, started yes. picking up a lot of traction around the world. Yes. And uh, I think... My impression is that the one at Yerevan State University is the most successful one now. The number of students grows every year that want to be enrolled in this program. And what exactly to, is the program at YSU? It is called Applied Statistics and Data Science. Okay. I think it starts from some uh, introductory stuff into mathematics for those who don't remember the it's a first year program. algebra. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there is there are these courses that kind of remind the important parts of the mathematics that will be required later. And then there are introductory courses to machine learning. There is a course on deep learning. There is a course on NLP that for the past two or three years is taught by Karen from Yerevanen. And there are computer vision. There are like recently there is a machine learning for healthcare course mm -hmm. there taught by David Chanazen and it's a pretty good one. I want to emphasize that David is doing a great job in inviting guest lecturers from all over the world, mm -hmm. like from uh, famous biotech companies. You can see that some CTO is, is giving a guest lecture for the students. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah, there are, if I remember correctly, at least at some point, uh, Stepan Sarksyan from CRISP was teaching signal processing there, mm. which is like a very good thing to do, right? He's, he's a great expert. Yeah, and... Yeah, there are some weak spots, I think. Uh, sometimes I talk to the students and sometimes they complain from a couple of courses. But in, in general, the feedback is good and um, the, you know, the word of mouth feedback works very well in Armenia. And that's why many students from our department mm -hmm. uh, choose to go to that master program instead of going to master programs in our department, right? Mm -hmm. What about at the PhD level? There are no like dedicated PhD programs. In machine learning? In machine learning. The way it is organized now is that if you find a supervisor, then it is somehow arranged. So, for example, Arshak Minasyan was doing his master's at Skoltech in Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, he came to Armenia and joined Yerevan State University's PhD in mathematics program and started to work with another Armenian professor, Arnak Dalalian, who mm -hmm. is from France. Uh, so Yerevanen also hired Arshak so that he doesn't need to work in other places, so he can focus on this research. Uh, and it worked out very well. So they published good papers, and he completed his PhD under the supervision of Dalalian from France. Mm -hmm. He got a degree. Uh, it went very well. Mm -hmm. There are a few other cases like that. So this is probably the most successful, the best case. I know... Uh, a case where a guy from Princeton had some connections there and did some work there and then came here and kind of got a degree. Uh, now I'm supervising one student at Russian Armenian University. It's the first year. Uh, this is the first time I, I took the risk to uh, supervise a PhD student. Mm. Yeah, Arnak Dalalian continues to supervise others. So Arshak is not the only case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so whenever we find 
a good supervisor, we kind of find a solution in terms of bureaucracy somehow, right? So right. Even, even if there are no dedicated programs, even if in some cases it's hard to officially write that the supervisor is this person from another country, there are cases where it's easier to not write that way. Mm-hmm. And I think at this moment, the committee that is organizing all these things, I forgot the name in English, they are working to make this bureaucracy better and to allow, to, yeah, to allow foreign supervisors. Can you speak a little bit about these um, companies that have built AI labs in the universities? For instance, CRISP is doing it at Yerevan State and Pixar at AUA. What are they working on there What's and what has the outcome been so far? So I'm in touch with CRISP about this project and it's a very early stage. At this point, I think they don't plan to do uh, like a full lab so probably they will just donate uh, good hardware to the to the university and then most of the activities academic activities uh, will be done by the university at, at this point i think that's the way it is planned although i don't think it's a final right. version so it's still in a very early stage it's it's hard to say how it will go i know less about aua i think at some point they took four or five students from AUA to work on projects and someone from PixArt was supervising them and I'm sure they got some results. I don't know if it became anything academic mm-hmm. and I'm not sure even if they wanted it to become academic so it could be you know, another kind of lab that just is uh, becoming a place where students get good projects. Mm-hmm. I don't know what were uh, the original plans there. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you think about sourcing talent for Yevan and finding students to come work for you guys, the main source of that is the universities? Yes. How do you see the level of interest in students to come work for a research group like Yevan and or do most of them sort of go towards industry? It's an interesting question. So, it's uh, getting tough with the current competition. So, there are good companies which are spending a lot of effort in hiring good students. So in some sense, it's, it's hard to compete with them. On the other hand, many of those students who join those companies at some point uh, come to us and ask if they can do some research project. Yeah. Usually they want to do it in parallel. And it's pretty hard to convince them that, you know, both your work and uh, academic work are full-time jobs. So right. yeah. It's not realistic to... Uh, do both mm-hmm. uh, in a good quality but i think everyone makes that mistake including me so it's it's hard to judge it's uh, hard to convince them until they've tried it and uh, yeah that so that, that's sometimes i i sell okay let, let's start let's try and then like in six months let's see what happens let's see what happens yeah so yeah. there is interest in some so my impression is that at this point there are more students who would like to do research than we can supervise but on the other hand, there is a lot of work to do to set correct expectations. So most students do not even know what it means to do research, uh, to do research right? So many do not know the good parts and the bad parts, you know? So you have to advertise uh, in some uh, way you know, what are the good parts of doing research. And there is a lot of work to do there. Like, I think we don't do it well now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is also need to explain what are the challenges and what kind of, I think the most important problem is to explain what kind of commitment it requires. Yeah, you could spend yeah. seven, eight years working on one very, very narrow problem 
And seven, eight years is a short time. <laughs> yeah, you know, in machine learning, it's faster. So True, yeah. no one will tolerate you to spend seven years without the result. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. And what are some of the research topics you guys are working on right now at Yerevanan? Uh, so another challenge at Yerevanan is that we are working on too many things. There is a project on object detection that's probably the easiest to explain. So how do you... Uh, teach computer to recognize objects with very few examples. So yeah. you show like four examples of a car and then it should recognize all other cars. Right. And like how efficient can you do this? And this is a project with uh, University of Southern California. One project that actually started from the same one but uh, diverged is about so-called domain generalization. That's when you make you want to make sure that if your model was trained on for example, images from, I don't know, five countries, it should work on an image from a sixth country also. Okay, so this is very relevant, for example, in healthcare, where you have different hospitals, different equipment. Yeah. They give you images that are slightly different. And then it turns out that if you train on images from a couple of hospitals and then you run your model on a new hospital, then you get some a decrease in accuracy. Mm-hmm. So why this happens and how to overcome it, it's an open question. And we're working on that. And our first paper on that direction was just accepted to a major computer vision conference like a week ago. And yeah, we we have many other ideas in that field. There are projects on text processing. I don't want to get into the technical details. It's about how to make them efficient, how to, again, learn with a little data. And uh, recently we started to work with an Armenian guy from uh, Facebook AI Research, and he helps us to boost this direction. Another project is about applying machine learning to chemistry. It's another interesting and rising topic. Like how could you predict properties of molecules without actually synthesizing them physically, right? Mm. Is that a new project you guys have started? Or? It's more than a year now. Mm. Yeah, we uh, submitted the first paper a month ago. We'll see how it goes. Are you working with chemistry departments in Armenia uh, on that project? Yes, yeah, so uh, actually it's a team of biologists uh, from Institute of Molecular Biology. And there is another guy who has a PhD in physics and uh, is one of those rare people who understand uh, chemistry, biology, physics, and also data science. So, hmm. It's uh, a good combination. Yeah, yeah that's why these this projects become possible. Right? right. You know, like most of the people who are good at machine learning have nothing to do with other branches and that's why this field is lacking behind in some sense domain knowledge is very important in machine learning let's talk a little bit about industry's reaction to jagavanen um i imagine it must be welcomed by some of these startups especially the ones that are doing machine learning work because in many ways you guys train a whole new generation of people who are experts in machine learning have they approached jagavanen to help with financing some of these um, either, I don't know, students' projects or expanding Yerevanen? What does industry think of Yerevanen? Uh, so, in general, the feedback and the reaction from industry is very positive. They are ready to support in, in many ways. I remember, I think it was in 2017, maybe, or 18, when uh, CRISP was just starting and they donated us some hardware, mm-hmm. for example, right? It was a very nice moment. So, uh, we have very good relationship with most of the companies that are doing machine learning. In terms of financial help, so the companies themselves have a problem to directly fund us because 
it's very hard to convince again to investors and right. others like why yeah. you are just giving this. So other than marketing purposes or I don't know social responsibility it's it's very hard for them to justify this so yeah. we get lots of offers from industry to work on their projects and then get funding for that mm-hmm. but that's not that's not a good strategy for us at least at this point because we want to grow as researchers so we need to publish as soon as possible and we need to work with scientists that are more experienced than us uh, that's how we are structuring our work and then there is no time left for working on projects for uh, that are relevant to the industry and are not so publishable. So in that sense, I think I want to emphasize that if any uh, group like us agrees to work on projects from industry, then there is a lot of funding available. Mm-hmm. That's very clear. It's just uh, does not fit our strategy. So right. that's why we don't do that. But uh, like if anyone else tries to do that, uh, it will work easily. Globally, this trend of computer science research moving, especially machine learning research, moving more and more towards industry. Over the last five, six years, we've seen a lot of the more famous papers coming out from Google, Microsoft, Facebook. One of the reasons is just because these these companies have so much money that it's um, becoming harder and harder for universities to compete, especially when attracting talent. Most of the professors who were at top universities are now research scientists, at least in part at Google or Microsoft and Facebook. What do you think the future of machine learning research is? Will it still mostly be incubated in universities in the traditional academic settings, or will it more and more gravitate towards industry? And how does Yerevan fit in that picture? Well, it's hard to predict. You know, I had this discussion a few years ago with some professors, and their point was that, you know, if you look at a longer period of history, like from 1950s, there were many uh, cases like Google Brain or DeepMind, like Bell Labs or right. later uh, Yahoo Research, and they do not exist now. So at some point, That's a good point. Uh, yeah. So uh, the general understanding among academics is that in a very long term, the backbone of uh, academic activities is still in the universities, right? So sometimes you have these branches in industry, mm-hmm. but in a very long term, you cannot rely on that. On the other hand, I think like even three years ago, all these professors or some of them did not think that a Google Brain and DeepMind will grow at this rate mm-hmm. and will survive so long. Okay, so in that sense, uh, there is a chance that at least in machine learning, this this time uh, will be different. Yeah, this this type of organization of uh, science will will continue to develop. I realize that there is one important advantage of industrial labs it's that like in DeepMind many researchers do have the full academic freedom to work on projects that they want to work on and additionally they are not required to write grant applications right it's (laughs) like being at a university with even more freedom yes so and additionally they also have access to very well-paid engineers Right. who can organize large hardware and implement computational resources, which is a big problem in academia. Okay, so like companies like DeepMind and Facebook AI are solving these two problems. So yeah. you have more time that is freed from uh, grant application writing, and then you have lots of good engineers who can support uh, your computational infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So with these two things, they become... Uh, it's, it's very hard to compete with those. Yeah. Okay, so... 
On the other hand, at some point, especially if we end up in a deep economic crisis, I think most of these companies will revisit their costs and prioritize things. I, I, I think that some of them will find it tough to explain why they are spending so much money on like I think for DeepMind Google loses around 500 million dollars every year which is how much they paid for DeepMind yeah. <laughs> yes but uh, I don't think that it will force them to close these things they will just find other solutions or maybe uh, scale down temporarily and well either scale down or maybe allocate some of these resources to commercial projects hmm. like for example DeepMind has this alpha fold right which is about protein structure prediction my impression is that there are a lot of business opportunities there yeah and no one knows if they are working on that direction or not so the good news is that they open sourced the entire thing so they didn't keep it secret mm -hmm. but they might be already working on something that could be commercially viable that would pay off mm -hmm. okay so it might not be the direct google's business but it could be another business. Yeah. And I also want to mention that we already have one negative example, that's OpenAI, which was meant to be open, but it's now quite closed, and it, it is almost being operated as a startup. It started as a non-profit, and then it moved to what they call a capped profit business exactly. model. But I think their cap is like 100x that investors can make, which... Exactly. It's and it is, uh, you know, the more important thing is that my friends tell me that it is being operated as a startup now. Yeah. So I think Sam Altman is running it, yeah. Yeah, and it uh, it's really works in that fashion. So yeah. uh, there are many things that they do but do not publish, and that's another path. And OpenAI took that path. So yeah, all these all these things are possible. So the last part of your question is about uh, Yerevan, and so we are trying to keep all options on the table to stay flexible. For example, there is this recent very unexpected flow of good Russian engineers and scientists uh, to Armenia, right? So if we were not flexible, we would not be able to adapt to these new realities, right? So uh, staying flexible is very important. And in that regard, uh, I'm thinking now whether we can hire good uh, Russian researcher from Russia. If we find someone with a PhD degree and someone who wants to work on academic projects, uh, then probably I will spend some effort to find funding for for those people and hire them. And we want to stay flexible as much as possible. In a very long term, I believe that Yerevanen could be integrated into a larger academic institution, including Yerevan State University, but it, it's a long way to go. So mm -hmm. there are many ways to improve in Yerevan State University to be able to do that. So in that, in that model, it would become sort of a research wing of Yerevan State University's applied mathematics and mm -hmm. informatics yeah, department? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, Yerevan State University is somehow designed to be a research university. So there are many labs, especially in physics and chemistry and biology. Not so many. Actually, there are no labs in computer science, uh, but the format exists. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and then it was designed for Soviet system. And now it somehow still exists. It's not a new thing for Yerevan State. To, to do that level of research activity. Let's let's move on to the state of science overall in Armenia. After the war, you and uh, some of your your friends and colleagues from industry started this initiative called Gituj. Can you tell us a little bit about what Gituj is and, and what your goals are with it? Yeah, I don't think I was among the starting people, but okay. uh, yeah, they are my friends. And the idea is 
to to make science cool again so to to convince everyone like society government and and all stakeholders that we need to think and we need to act seriously uh, improving the science in armenia yeah and it kind of became a lobbying process to work with the government different branches of the government understand where It's an advocacy bottlenecks. group, right? It's an advocacy group. And Gituj also started to work with scientists, with institutions, uh, with National Academy of Sciences and different government bodies to, to understand the exact problems and, and guide them towards solutions. It, it was pretty successful in the sense that Gituj managed to get very different people together for one agenda. And most of these people were not scientists. They were from industry, and, and it helped uh, to design the message better. What is the uh, message? Uh, the message is that uh, we need to increase the funding, uh, the government funding for science, uh, and we have to reform the system to make it more efficient and give opportunity to scientists to develop their labs and develop an academic environment, mm -hmm. okay, and remove the bottlenecks uh, mm -hmm. for this. There is some partial success there, so the government increased Uh, funding of science uh, for this year by like 60%. And I don't want to get into the details. There are different ways the government funds science and I think almost all directions are uh, got improved. Yeah. Now it's time to uh, look for the next steps, which is in one direction you have to bring more people. So, you know, the problem with science in Armenia is that we have, I think, 4,000 scientists, something like that. And if you look at the ones who publish regularly in good uh, international journals and are well integrated into international science, it's like around 1,000, mm. which is a very small number. If you want to have a proper science and something that can eventually feed the economy. And a big part uh, of those 4,000 are in the later stages of their career, right? Yes, that's another problem. Yes, so maybe half of them are like more than 50 years old or something like that. So uh, we have to grow this number. We have to we have to make scientific career uh, more realistic and uh, more competitive compared mm -hmm. to other careers so that students can choose this path mm -hmm. and we should create all the channels all the opportunities for them to to become scientists right so my personal understanding is the best way to do that is to bring back those phd students and postdocs who are working in different countries so you know there is this interesting opportunity that after you do one or two postdocs in different countries, so every postdoc is in a different location. Right. Right, so uh, like you are born in Yerevan, you go to do PhD in UK, and then you do a postdoc in China, and then you do another postdoc in Italy. Yeah. And at some point you realize that you don't have a house, you know, you, you, you don't know where you live. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at that point, people start actively looking for a permanent position. Yeah. And that's the time where most of the scientists actually leave academia hmm. because it's usually hard to find an academic position, especially in a location where you would love to spend your entire life in. So yeah, yeah. Uh, academic uh, careers can be brutal that way. I mean, yes. you're five years at one university, 10 years at another. And, and you know, it's uh, hard to construct a life sometimes you, you have an option to leave academia or to find a permanent position in some i don't know a remote town in the united states where That's you don't right, know yeah. anyone so for those people i think we should be very actively suggesting offering good opportunities in armenia so to uh, to bring to their hometown uh, and give an opportunity to form a lab uh, grow a team with decent funding and yeah, staying with their friends yeah. mm -hmm. 
Do you think that's possible with the the resources that the government is allocating to science funding now, or do, do there need to be big changes for that to happen? It's it's getting closer, okay, but I I'm not sure it's there yet. Mm-hmm. So this will be tested with an experiment this year. So uh, the science committee, which is a part of the government responsible for science funding, they are starting a program to repatriate. Uh, scientists. Uh, scientists and uh, to help them to form their groups in local institutions. Mm-hmm. There are a few challenges there. Yeah, I think financially it's not very bad now, should be relatively good. At this point, I feel there is a problem with the host institutions. It's not obvious that all institutions are ready to accept new labs and help them. But again, this is something that we can uh, work on and improve. Mm-hmm. So I think this year we will have uh, like a field experiment and we'll see how it works. And next year we can improve. So the good thing is that the leadership of the science committee is open to all these thoughts and yeah. they are also flexible. And I think they will uh, learn the experience and and will uh, adjust accordingly. Mm-hmm. Again, with this recent uh, interest from Russian scientists, uh, this gets another flavor. I have already seen resumes of two Russian scientists who said in a message that they would be interested in forming a lab. So mm-hmm. they have experience in building labs and even at this level, right? So I'm still not sure how uh, how exactly we should approach uh, these cases and what we should offer. But yeah, there are there are this type of options. So in general, like everyone knows that academic labs should be international. So you should not limit yourself to Armenians. Yeah, of course. There, There is no lab in the world that has only one nationality. Yeah. You know, it's, and this is something that we know. We have somewhere uh, in our brains that we have to adjust to become international, but none of us really acts on that. So like even us, like Yerevanen, uh, we know that that's the correct way of building a, a research team, but we never actually did any action to make that happen. Why and is that? It's hard to say. So, you know, it's probably about short-term priorities. Mm. So, like, if, if you have lots of other things to do, you don't spend time on those things that are important in the long term. I right. think that's the yeah. biggest problem. Yeah, but but now with uh, with this situation, I personally start to think about uh, how to make us, like, More attractive uh, open or attractive you know, for foreigners. Uh, and I think in some sense it's a, it's a great opportunity for Armenian science in general to quickly react. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our science, you know, we, we have many problems in science management and the current managers are not flexible enough to, to react. So it is very obvious from the tech industry. So if you look, those companies which are very flexible, they quickly adapt to this flow and they are, I don't know, they are asking their HRs to get into the Telegram groups where the Russians are posting their CVs, right? But there are other companies uh, which do not know how to react. They're like in a shock. Yeah. Or, and um, It's a work culture thing. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, academic institutions are in this second group, so they are not flexible to mm-hmm. react quickly. But I want to state that many people in our generation do not know that most of the science in Armenia was built in that way. So in like early 1950s, mm. uh, when mostly Jewish Soviet scientists were protesting against Soviet government, they had a hard time to find a job in Moscow-based institutes. Mm. So there were many cases where these institutes were just firing them. and For uh, discrimination reasons, things like no, that? No, I think it was more political. Oh. 
you know, like uh, because they were talking against, like they were signing open letters uh, against uh, yeah, the, the government. And uh, there are many stories that Alihanian brothers, so the elder brother was working in an important institution in, in Moscow. I think they were involved in even nuclear projects. Mm. He had uh, a lot of power there. And the other brother, uh, Artem Alihanian, came to Armenia to start what later became Yerevan Physics Institute, now Alihanian National Laboratory. Mm. And at that point, both brothers were convincing the other scientists who had problems in Moscow institutions to move to Armenia and to work in Yerevan Physics Institute. And that's how the uh, particle accelerator was built in Yerevan Physics Institute. It's not that there were many uh, physics experts in Armenia to, to time, build that. Yeah. Right, well, so... Uh, I didn't know that story. Yeah, so it's, it's not the only case. Like, even in computer science, so there is a, a branch of computer science called mathematical logic, mm-hmm. And it's somehow developed in Armenia. We have courses, uh, we have many PhDs in, in that field. And uh, I recently learned that it all of it started from uh, Igor Zaslavsky, uh, who was kind of sent to Armenia for similar reasons. Hmm. I don't know when, maybe in 60s or 70s. And he basically started this branch of science in Armenia, and it still exists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is not a new phenomenon. And I think this is, in some sense, another Alihanian moment that we can try to leverage. Right. I hope that we do. Hirant, before we get to our final question, uh, let me ask something a little bit more personal. As a scientist and a researcher, you're constantly expected to keep up with the trends in the narrow areas of research that you focus on. How do you go about learning these new topics and keeping up to date? The it's it's very tough in machine learning. Yeah, so fast. Yeah, it's it's like even in the narrow west thing that you are working on, if it's, if it's something that a few other labs are also working on, it's very tough to keep up. And many people, including in Yerevan, and are complaining from that. Like The solution is to allocate time to read papers. Yeah. And at some point you you start to learn how to read papers fast. Yeah, more efficiently. Yeah, and uh, it, it comes with experience. It's, it's not very easy. Like one of our team members who recently joined uh, Yerevanen was asking me like how I'm scrolling the paper like uh, very quickly to find the table that is the most important one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like she was surprised like how do you do this <laughs> and but it comes with experience right so uh, yes it is it is important to uh, to read a lot of papers i would not say that we are doing it well mm. there is a lot of place to improve one technical trick to encourage it is to have uh, weekly journal clubs so and incentivize everyone to present something in the journal club yeah. so that they know that they need to read new stuff find interesting stuff and then to present Mm-hmm. to others. Uh, we do that. Again, it's not effi- as efficient as I uh, would like it to be. Okay, Hrant, and my final question. In the five to ten year time frame, how do you see Yerevanen? And a, a second supplementary question to that, how do you see the science field in Armenia growing? So the general direction is to engage a lot more scientists that are not in Armenia. So that's the general trend that I see that we are forced to do because of the number of scientists we have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is this uh, one directional flow of scientists from Armenia to other countries. Yeah. So lots of people do their PhDs. You mentioned that many of our scholars are 50 plus year old. The reason is that the PhD students that 
they could raise over these like 20, 30 years, uh, most of them actually left the country. Yeah. So went to work in other universities, which is normal in the current state of affairs in the world, right? So it's very hard to find a person who did PhD in one place and stayed at that same place forever. Okay? Yeah. So everyone is changing their locations. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with Armenia is that it's one direction. So no one doing a PhD in India or in France later moved to Armenia. Yeah. So this is the biggest thing we need to solve. So uh, we should be competitive enough to attract, first of all, Armenians, but then not only Armenians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so for Yerevanen, if we zoom in, it's the same strategy. Although there are, I already see two different paths. Uh, one of them is slow and the other one is fast. Mm -hmm. So the slow version is that we slowly start to convince Armenians and then non-Armenians to come. Maybe next year we can expect to bring two people and then the other year another two people and, mm -hmm. and grow this way. The other part is to put a lot of investment and start a larger institute where we can attract professors. Like one or two professors will be enough to attract a younger generation. Mm. One good example is Kaust, which is King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. I know at least in our field in machine learning related stuff, they hired a Slovak professor and this Slovak professor managed to build a lab, which is which is a very attractive place now to work like our friends from who did PhD in France go there to do postdoc. There are a lot of people from Armenia. So I think some sort of format like this can work well in Armenia. Mm -hmm. Uh, another idea that I recently got from Aram Galestian is to set up a branch of a foreign institute. It could be university, it could be research institute. So university is probably better, but it's more complicated. Research institute is easier. And then if you have a, a good brand, so you don't ha need to develop your own brand to attract scientists, postdocs, right? And you build a branch and somehow convince one or two professors to join and then the rest will grow much faster. Hmm. So a, a private institution, let's say like an open AI or a, an Allen AI, a DeepMind, some of these private groups that are working on machine lear learning research would open uh, a branch in Yerevan N and that would be the catalyst to attracting some big name professors to come? Look, so for DeepMind and companies like that, it's harder. Right, because Those ambitious ones. Yeah. Uh, they, they open branches in many countries, but they open a branch where there's a good professor uh, for a professor. Yeah, that's right. right. Uh, so it's it's the other way around. I think there are academic institutions that are uh, inside American universities, or uh, yeah, there are there are many formats, and one can convince them to to start a branch. Uh, most probably, it will be with Armenian funding. So. These institutions will give their brands and their network, which is most important, but they won't fund mm -hmm. their own branch, right? And and then uh, that could be an important important point which attracts everyone. And mm -hmm. in that uh, scenario, like Yerevanen could easily be joined into that. Yeah. Okay. So all of us can go and uh, become a part of that. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's an ambitious and uh, fast way of doing this. Mm -hmm. And similar things can happen with other research directions. If that doesn't work, uh, then the slow path is, is the one that we are going with, which is to gradually attract uh, more and more people. Right. Hirant, I wish you luck with that. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Thank you for inviting. Thank you for listening to the segment of the EVN Disrupt podcast. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you consume podcasts. Also, make sure to follow EVN Report on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date for more engaging content from Armenia. Thank you.